0: There, you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith. And you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: I'm amazed at this audience and (laughs) at its size and its enthusiasm. We're kind of crowded here. There must be about 400 persons in this room, no? No, there's about 800 persons in this room. (laughs) Exactly 50% of them are invisible. (laughs) And they don't take up any room. And if you saw them, everything would change. Imagine you're doing something, you think it's in private, and you suddenly notice somebody through the door, through the window, watching you all the time. What does that change? That changes everything. Well, who are they? Maybe it's just a little kid. That doesn't change that much. Suppose it's your mother. Oh, well, that changes a little more. <laughs> Suppose it's an angel who has a kind of mental telepathy with God and has a God's eye view on what you're doing. If you really believed that, that would change a lot of things. Well, I'm not going to say anything that you don't know already, I think. You're educated Catholics, you know what the church teaches about angels and demons, you know what the Bible says about them, Uh, I'm here just to remind you of things because the most important things are the things we forget, not the things we haven't yet learned. Alexander Solyanitsyn, in one of the greatest speeches in the history of Western civilization, the Harvard commencement address in 1978, Google it sometime on your computer, it's a masterpiece, uh, diagnosed the decadence of Western civilization down to one basic cause, and it's very obvious. We have forgotten God. It's not that we don't know him, it's that we've forgotten him. So I'm here to help you to remind, uh, to, to help you remind you of, uh, of his angels, his agents. I wrote a book called Angels and Demons, What Do We Really Know About Them? Uh, it's not very original. But uh, it sold very well, and people are very interested. Look at all the people who came out here tonight, not to meet me, but to eat, to meet angels. It's a fascinating subject. Uh, I'll go for about 40 minutes, uh, and then we'll have a break, and then I'll come and just seed your minds a little bit with some samples from the book so that you ask a lot of questions. I want to leave at least 30 minutes for Q&A because that's always the most important and interesting part of any speech, Uh, especially among Catholic audiences who believe in purgatory and therefore you have to sit through dull monologues before you get to the interesting dialogue. (laughs)
2: Let
1: me just quote one page from my book, the very first page, Uh, There's 110 questions here. And the first one is, uh, I'm browsing through this book and wondering why should I buy it? What can you tell me about angels in one page? All right, I'll tell you 12 things about angels. First, they're real. They really exist, not just in our minds, or in our myths, or in our symbols, or in our culture. They are as real as your dog, as real as your sister, as real as electricity. Second, they're present right here, right now, right next to you. They're listening to these words as you're listening. And they're probably laughing at me. (laughs) Third, they're not cute, cuddly, comfortable, chummy, or cool. They are fearsome and formidable. They are huge. They are warriors. When they appear in scripture, the first thing they usually have to say is, Fear not. Fourth, they are the real extraterrestrials, the real supermen, the ultimate aliens. Their powers are far beyond those of all fictional superheroes. Fifth, they are more brilliant minds than Einstein. Sixth, they can literally move the heavens and the earth if God permits them. And he sometimes does. Seventh, Some of them are evil, fallen angels, demons, devils. These are not myths. If they are myths, Jesus Christ is a fool. Demons and demon possessions and exorcisms really happen. Eighth, angels are aware of you even though you can't usually see them or hear them, but you can communicate with them. They are not deaf. You can talk to them even without speaking. Ninth, you really do have your very own guardian angel. Everybody does, Jesus said so. Tenth, angels sometimes come disguised. The Bible says, do not neglect hospitality, for some have entertained angels unawares. That's a warning from life's oldest and best instruction manual. That homeless bum that shows up at your back door, that might be an angel in disguise. 11, we are on a protected part of a great battlefield between angels and devils extending to eternity. That is the ultimate warfare. Finally, angels are sentinels standing at the crossroads where life meets death. They work especially at moments of crisis, at the brink of disaster, for bodies, for souls, and for civilizations. Well, as a philosopher, I like to organize my thoughts logically, so I'd like to ask five questions. What are angels? How do we know about them? Why are they neglected in our culture? Why are they important? And how do they change our lives? What should we do about them? First of all, what are they? Well, first of all, they're creatures. God created them. They're not gods, they're not eternal. (coughs) Secondly, they're pure spirits. They don't have material bodies. They're invisible, but real. They're persons, non-human persons, at least as real as you are. Thirdly, they're immortal. They can't die, ever. You can't kill them. Fourth, they're intelligent. Super-intelligent. They're as much more intelligent as we are than we are more intelligent than dogs. (laughs) Some dogs, anyway. (laughs) Fifth, their intelligence works differently than ours. Ours is connected with a body, so it works from the bottom up. We learn by experience, by our senses. Angels have no bodies and no senses, so they work from the top down by a kind of God's eye point of view. Sixth, they have wills, moral wills. They can choose between good and evil. Some of them chose good at the beginning and God confirmed them in that forever. Others chose evil, anti-God, from the beginning and they're confirmed in that forever. So don't ever pray for the conversion of a demon. It can never happen in all eternity. And don't ever feel that an angel will let you down or apostatize. That can never happen either in all eternity. No human beings are either all good or all evil. There's a little good in the worst of us and a little bad in the best of us, but that's not true with angels and demons. Angels are all good and demons are all bad. Next, they're not in time. This is very tricky. Time is one of the trickiest ideas that can ever enter our mind. We all know what it is until we're asked and then we don't. Uh, Since angels are not part of the universe, since they're not made of matter, since you can't get any closer to them by climbing a mountain or taking a a plane, uh, and since matter and space and time go together, angels are not in our time. You can't say, for instance, that angels were created exactly 13.7 billion years ago when matter was created in the Big Bang. You can't say that angels were created whenever Adam and Eve were created. You can't put a chronological time sequence on angels. Now, that's not as hard to understand as you think because we too live in angel time as well as material time. Your body has a biological clock and you can measure how old your body is by how many times the sun has risen and set in in, in your life. And that's chronological time or chronos, the Greek language has two different (coughs) words for time, English doesn't, it only has one. The other Greek word for time, kairos, means spiritual time, that's not measured by matter, that's measured by your soul, by your spirit, by your choices, by your purposes. When St. Paul says, it is now time to uh, believe and to repent, because our salvation is closer than when we first believed, Uh, Does he mean it's three o'clock in the afternoon? Does he mean it's Thursday? No, that time is measured by purpose. Uh, You have a soul as well as a body and they're connected in one person, unlike an angel. And yet, that soul time is different than your body's time. It's connected, but it's not measured in the same way. Angels live only in spirit time or soul time, not in matter time. So they do Uh, move forward, they change. They do things, one thing after another. But it's not a time that you can measure uh, scientifically by chronometers. Yet they interact with us. God sends them into this universe. God created two universes, you know. He created a universe of, of spirit, angels. And then he created a universe of matter. And then he sent some of those spirits into the material universe. It's like an author writing two novels and putting some of the characters in the first novel into the second as well. He can do that, he can do anything. (laughs) So they interact with us. In fact, if you take out all of the references to angels and demons in the Bible, uh, well, you wouldn't have too much left. You'd You'd have a mess you'd have a lot of cuttings on the floor and your scissors would probably get dull by the time you got to the end. They seem to be present at almost everything that's important that happens. Which brings us to the question how we know about angels. And the first way, of course, is what I've just mentioned. They're in the Bible all over the place, especially at times of crises like today. Nobody quite knows what's going to happen next, uh, and there are a lot of different theories as to, about, uh, as to why we are in crisis uh, and what we should do about it, but pretty much everybody realizes that we are not in a calm, peaceful, predictable time. We're in a time when something is dying and something is being born. And that's probably why there are so many visions of angels happening now. So we know about them from, uh, from scriptural history, from biblical history. We also know about them because the church dogmatically and infallibly teaches that angels exist. This is not the single most important thing the church teaches, but it's part of the package deal. Uh, Divine revelation is a package deal. If you don't like part of the package and you want to throw it overboard, you've implicitly said that you are the editor of God's mail, not the author, and you have a, a right to edit it before you deliver it. Well, if you don't like angels today, then you might not like something else tomorrow. Uh, If if I had the authority to edit the Christian revelation and to correct God and to say, let's throw this out, the first thing I'd throw out was hell. The problem is, if I say the hell with hell, (laughs) because I don't like it, suppose someday I say, well, I don't like heaven either, I'll throw that out too. I remember I had a crisis as a teenager. I didn't want to go to heaven because I thought it was going to be boring. I have ADD, so I get bored very easily. Uh, But I'm a philosopher, so I have ADHD, which is uh, Attention Deficit in High Definition. (laughs) But I thought of church services as boring, and I didn't want to go to eternal church service that I can never get out of. But I didn't want to go to the other place either, and I, I knew I couldn't stay here forever. Fortunately, uh, I discovered that the Bible teaches that uh, you don't need churches in heaven because you have God himself. And I figured, well, God is the most interesting thing there is, so that's all right. Uh, but almost everybody likes part of the package deal of divine revelation. Almost everybody likes, for instance, God is love. And almost nobody likes hell. If you do like hell, there's something wrong with you. That's the bad news. Well, uh, how do you know that God is love? Does reason prove it? Does history prove it? Does anything prove it? No. God surprises us. He says, I'm crazy. I love you. Of course you're nuts. Uh, Of course you're not worthy of love, uh, unless uh, you think you're such a a, a perfect person, and and then you're really not worthy of love. Then you're arrogant. But you're insane, because you sin. Sin is insanity, because every sin causes misery. And anybody who deliberately chooses misery over joy is insane, and we all do that many, many times. But God loves us anyway. We're his beloved but severely retarded children. (laughs) Now, how do you know that God loves you? You feel it, your feelings aren't infallible. Somebody says so, somebody's not infallible. Well, only if God reveals it, only if God says so, do you know that that's so. There's no purely logical proof that God chooses to love you. He doesn't have to. But that's the part of the package deal you like. All right, well, the negative part, like sin and demons and hell, that's the negative part. Well, you don't like that, but it's part of the same package deal. If you can throw any one part overboard, you've sunk the whole ship because the whole cargo is on, on that ship So it it is part of the package deal of of the Bible and the church. Also, by the way, this is not an infallible proof, but it's a very important one and a powerful one. All the religions in the world teach the existence of angels. There's no religion in the world, except recent man-invented ones, uh, that say there are no angels. So if in fact there are no angels, then they're all wrong. Well, they could be, but then you're a member of a very small and recent and geographically particular group of non-religious people in modern Western civilization who alone live in the real world, whereas 99% of all the people who ever lived believe in these spirits and angels and invisible things which, which don't exist, so they're all crazy and you're the only ones that are sane. That's very unlikely. It's also very arrogant. Well, let's listen to those who don't believe in angels. Why? Some say, well, nobody believes that anymore. Not true, most people still do. Some say, well, my friends don't take it seriously. My friends who who run the media and make movies and so on, oh, are they uh, the Bible? Are they divine revelation? When when you want to know how to make a movie, who do you go to? Somebody in Hollywood, not the Bible. When you want to know what God thinks, who do you go to? Not Hollywood, the Bible. <laughs> they say that's bad science. They didn't know science in olden times, so they invented angels. They wanted to explain things, and they didn't know the correct physical explanations, so they invented invisible people. Well, that's bad psychology, because angels aren't, they are first of all, to explain things. They don't explain very much at all. Science seeks rational explanations for, for facts, for data. And as science has explained more and more of the physical world, belief in angels has not declined among religious believers. Because angels aren't just substitutes for uh, gravity or substitutes for, for mass and energy, they're persons. There's a different purpose that they serve rather than just explanation of the data. If, if I were to get hit by a rotten apple right now uh, and I was a scientist, I would want to know why my face was on the trajectory of that rotten apple and I'd explain it mathematically. But if I'm just a human being and not a scientist, my first question would be who threw it and why? Well, religion is an answer to the second question. The world is a whole bunch of apples, some of them very nice and some of them rotten, and they're thrown at us, and it's perfectly legitimate to say, well, how are they being thrown? What's the mechanism? How does it work? Science answers that question very, very well. But that's a totally different question than who did it and why? Well, God, gods, angels, demons, The existence of the supernatural is something that the vast majority of all human beings in all times, places, and cultures has believed in, spontaneously. This is either an innate wisdom, uh, a kind of intuitive knowledge, or it's an innate illusion. If it's an innate illusion, then most human beings, the rest of mankind, the vast majority, who have believed in some sort of a god, think knowledge that there is a supernatural world, an invisible world, is very much like our knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't go through the senses. Good and evil don't have color, or shape, or mass. They don't show up on scales. You can't perform experiments on them. So how do you know there is such a thing as good and evil? It's utterly non-scientific. Not anti-scientific, just non-scientific. Well, we have a conscience, which is a good and evil detector. And we also have a kind of spiritual intuition which is a a, a supernatural detector. We also have, let's say, beauty detectors. You can't prove that either. How is it that we can detect beauty? Why will an animal pee on the Mona Lisa but you wouldn't? (laughs) There's a whole dimension there that does not appear to the senses. All right, so the reason most of the human beings who have ever lived in the history of the world have believed in angels is intuitive. Uh, Does that mean it's irrational? No, I think there are very strong rational arguments for the existence of angels. They're not conclusive, they're only probable. I gave one of them already. Uh, If you trust the, the common sense and wisdom of most human beings, then it 's much more probable that the ninety nine percent are right than that the one percent are right that 's not an infallible argument, but certainly a probable one here 's another one. Look at the universe. You see that it 's full, not only crowded but full of almost every possible species uh, and subspecies uh, matter uh, the chemical structure of matter is is very complex from from the lowest atomic numbers to the highest. And then o- organic life at its most primitive beginnings, viruses and bacteria, they're, they're quite complicated. And then, then you get to more complex animals, and you get complex genetic codes, and you get complex behaviors. And even, even the insects, I'm, I'm told by one source that there are as many subspecies of insects as there are individual human beings in the world. It's in the billions and it's just insects. Well, it's, it's crammed full, every possible level. And then you get to the higher animals, which share some of the features of, of human consciousness, but not others. And then you get to human beings. And every, everything in that cosmic hierarchy is filled. And then what? Well, human beings are the first species that is spiritual as well as physical. And then there's God. So there's only two kinds of spirit, There's millions of kinds of animals, but only two kinds of spirits, human and divine. The gap between God, the infinite spirit, and man, the spirit connected to a body, is a big open gap. It's at least possible that there are all sorts of bodiless spirits, uh, some greater than others, that fill that gap, just as there's all sorts of animals that fill the gap below us. So by the analogy of animals, Uh, it's at least probable that there are angels. Whoever created the universe likes to fill in all the gaps. So why would he leave one big gap above us if he didn't leave any gap below us? That's at least a reasonable, probable argument. But I think it can only be a probable argument simply because God decides what to create, and we can't predict what he does. His choices come from his free will. He didn't have to create angels. He didn't have to create oysters, but he did. So before there were oysters, no human being could predict God has to create oysters. There'll be oysters tomorrow. You can't know that. So I don't think you can have a conclusive proof for the existence of angels, but I think you can have very, very strong reasons for believing in them, quite apart from divine revelation and faith. Well, if angels are so reasonable, why are they neglected today? Because the the master heresy of uh, the civilization that we're living in, modern Western civilization, is naturalism, as distinct from supernaturalism, flattening out the universe into only those aspects that human science can understand. The denial of of mystery, the denial of the supernatural, the denial of, of, of the invisible. Why? Is there any proof of that? Well, no. But if that existed, we couldn't predict it, we couldn't control it. We would be primitive. We would be little children in relation to that. We've grown up into being masters and controllers of nature. We've come to a a deep understanding of nature. There's a lot that we still don't understand, but we've made enormous progress in understanding nature and in controlling it, and we're rightly proud of that. So that's our strong card. If the supernatural does exist, that's our weak card. We're adults when it comes to nature. We're tiny little kids when it comes to the supernatural. That doesn't feel right. It feels uncomfortable. You have to be humble if the supernatural exists. You have to have awe and a sense of mystery. And we don't like that. It's scary. We wanna be adults, we wanna be in control. It's not so much science, I think, as technology that we're in love with. Uh, Of course, you need science for technology, but technology gives you control, it gives you power, makes you feel like God. Of course, it hasn't made us happy. You see, God is not only smart and powerful, and we've become more like him through our science, which has made us smart, and our technology, which has made us powerful, but it hasn't made us any better. I don't think we're more pious or more saintly or more moral than our ancestors, and we're certainly not more happy. The suicide rate keeps going up. Psychiatrists multiply. Uh, Pills to cure depressions multiply. Somehow it hasn't made us happy. So to take that as our model and to say anything that doesn't fit that model must be rejected is, is, is extremely foolish. I think we also fear the supernatural because it demands a kind of personal transformation. Uh, Humility is a difficult thing. Uh, It means that you get yourself off the throne. There's somebody else who's in control. We're scared of that, especially that somebody else is, is invisible. But the alternative naturalism, the denial of the supernatural, brings God down to our level, if he's still there at all. So he's just a chum, or he's just all the nice feelings inside of us. Or else it exalts us to God's level, uh, and we sing, we are building the city of God. God isn't doing it. You know, self-celebration. We're supposed to celebrate God, not ourselves. And that feeling of awe, that feeling of of wonder, that feeling of of humility before God, uh, that's rare. The great Jewish scholar, Abraham Heschel, was once translating some old uh, Hebrew text. And one of his students said, uh, Rabbi, it must be wonderful for you as a rabbi to live amidst the comforts of religion. And uh, Rabbi Heschel stood up. He was six six inches tall, and he had red hair. And he said, comforts of religion, say you. Let me translate the sentence I have just read in Rabbi So-and-so in the 10th century. He writes, God is not nice. God is not an uncle. God is an earthquake. Do you understand that? Well, he's a good earthquake, but he's an earthquake. Most people don't realize that. I have a lot of fundamentalist friends who use language like uh, I was talking to God the other day, and God said to me this, and God said to me that, and sometimes, I guess this is wicked of me, but I, I, I say to them, when, uh, when God talked to you, uh, what did you do? And they always say, oh, well, I said, uh, I said to God this, and I said that. Wait a minute, that the first thing you did? Uh-huh. After God talked to you, you talked right back to him? Well, yeah, I think you forgot something. What do you mean? Well, in the Bible, when God talks to people, they do something else first. What's that? Well, let's see what uh, the Apostle John said in the book of Revelation when he saw God. I fell down at his feet as one dead. (laughs) Did you feel you should do that? Well, if not, maybe that wasn't God. Maybe that was just your own imagination. (laughs) The fear of the Lord is not the end of wisdom. Love of the Lord is the end of wisdom. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning. Because you don't have that, and if God is just your chum, Well, then he's just like your big brother. He's sort of like Harvey. (laughs) Yes, he's good, yes, he's loving, but he's not comfortable. He demands something. He demands something that you don't want to give, your your very self. He wants you to die. He wants you to love him so much that it doesn't feel good anymore. It, it, It feels like you're not loving him enough and you have to give him more and more, and you're never, ever satisfied until heaven. And that's very uncomfortable. We like to feel good about ourselves. We like to listen to our pop psychologists, our favorite modern version of the Pharisees, about how adequate and and comfortable we are. And Jesus is not a pop psychologist. Well, my fourth question is, why are angels important? And I've given you one answer already, because they show you the fear of God. When you meet an angel, uh, unless he's disguised as a human being, and sometimes they do that, I'll get into those details later, when you meet an angel, you realize that this is not an equal. Uh, When people see angels, they're always big, they're never little, they're never cute, they're always formidable. Secondly, since angels have free will, and since some of them have chosen evil and become demons, those are scary in a different way. They hate you. We have enemies. Did you know that the word enemies is used over a thousand times in the Bible? How often do you use that word? Not often. When you're at war, you do. Don't you know you're at war? Spiritual warfare is on almost every page of the Bible. That's part of the meaning of human history. We do have enemies. They're not flesh and blood. Our enemies are not uh, the wrong political party. Our enemies are not even... Uh, the people who, who hate Catholics and wish that we would die. Our enemies are not Muslim terrorists who want to kill our bodies. Our enemies are not uh, abortionists who want to kill our babies' lives. Our enemies are not even the, uh, the pornographers and uh, Planned Parenthood. Uh, our enemies are not wicked people. Those are poor, deluded patients together with us in God's hospital, and we are God's nurses. And some of our patients don't realize that we are their friends, their nurses. So they fight with us, but they're not our enemies. That's very clear. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. They are principalities and powers of wickedness in high places. And if that's not true, the Bible lies. So we're at war and we need help. So we've got a lot of angels to fight with us. Every one of us has a guardian angel. There are also guardian angels for nations. That's in the Bible too. We have real protectors, someone to watch over me. Well, that changes everything. Once you realize you're at war, the adrenaline clicks in and everything changes. Remember the first time you saw the Twin Towers go down in 9-11 on TV? Remember, that was not just a shock. That changed your consciousness of where you were. Good grief. We thought we were at peace. We are now at war. Well, that's the consciousness that we ought to have all the time because we are at war all the time. There's only two places where we're not at war, heaven and hell. There's no heaven and hell, and there's no hell in heaven. Those are the only two kinds of peace, and they're opposite, of course. All right, what's the practical payoff, then? What are we supposed to do about it? So there our angels, so there is this spiritual warfare. So what? Well, first of all, thank God for them. They're gifts. God gave us his primary creation, the creatures that are vastly superior to us, to serve us. We are being waited on by our superiors. When Jesus came to earth, he washed the disciples' feet He played the part of a slave, a servant. And he sends his angels, who are inferior to him but superior to us, to do the same thing. Thank God for them. They send you all sorts of inspirations. When you get to heaven and you meet your guardian angel, uh, you will probably uh, recognize in your past life on Earth all the times that he helped you. And they will be thousands and thousands of times. Oh, it was you who gave me that good idea. Oh, it was you who helped me overcome that temptation. Sometimes the help is physical. Oh, it was you who just put that thought into my mind, no, I'd better not cross the street right now, and suddenly the 18-wheeler came and you would have been crushed. Almost everybody has a story like that. They're invisible helpers. And sometimes they're visible. Sometimes that stranger that just shows up Uh, well, maybe if you looked, you wouldn't see a navel, because angels don't have parents or birth certificates. (laughs) So thank God for them. Uh, Rely on them, the good ones. Everybody has a a good and evil detector. It's not infallible. but we've got it. There are some people that you just spontaneously trust and some people that you don't. And the same is true of spirits. When an angel comes to you, it'll usually feel right. And when a demon comes to you, it'll usually feel wrong, that feeling of darkness. Saint Ignatius of Loyola in the spiritual exercises distinguishes spirits of consolation and spirits of desolation. Spirits of desolation make you feel angry and self-righteous. Spirits of consolation make you feel peaceful and humble. So we we have angel and demon detectors. Welcome, the angels. Be suspicious of the demons. And you can pray to your angels, just as you can pray to saints. They hear you. Pray to them spontaneously. They're always present. And pray the prayers that the church gives us. Uh, Every morning, you should pray, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here, ever this day be at my side, to light and lead, to guard and guide. And the St. Michael prayer, you know how that began. Pope Leo Thirteenth, one of the most brilliant popes in history, had this vision of the coming 20th century. I think this happened in 1890 or something, towards the end of the 19th century. And he fell into a swoon. They thought he was dead. He was a really strong guy. Uh, Leo means lion. He had the soul of a lion. But he swooned away like a Victorian lady because when he came out of the swoon, he explained what happened. Uh, God showed him a vision of the devil's favorite century, the 20th. And he said, I had this vision where God gave Satan, at the beginning of creation, permission to pick one century to do his worst work in. And Satan picked the 20th. And God showed me some of the horrors of the 20th century. And uh, uh, right after he he woke up, he composed the St. Michael prayer to get the church through the 20th century. And that prayer was said by every Catholic mass, low mass, after mass, for 60 or 70 years. Until, right after Vatican II, Vatican II said nothing about it, didn't say don't do it, but somehow uh, that habit got lost. And very few churches do that. And you know what happened after Vatican II, which have lost two generations. Things are changing. The tide is changing. The war uh, is heating up, and I'm very optimistic, because as the world is getting worse, the church is getting better. And when darkness gets darker, and brightness gets brighter, and the two meet, which one wins? You know which one wins. All right, let's uh, take a five-minute break and think about some questions you want to ask me during the Q&A section. And after five minutes, I'll give you a couple of examples of specific ideas from the book and then ask you for more of them.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. (laughs) Cree.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.